Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. So we have been currently in this series, which has been older brothers and sisters in the faith. Basically, people who we think are fascinating in church history. And talking about who they were, what they did, and how they have influenced our faith journeys today. So Steve, who are we talking about today? Today, I want to share with you one of the most fascinating for me, and I like your word fascinating, because it allows for ambiguity. There's good things and there's also messy things about anybody that we've talked about. Figures in church history, especially in early church history, his name is Tertullian. Actually, his like long, fancy, full Latin name is uh, Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus, and everybody just calls him Tertullian, because Quintus Septimius means like fifth and seventh. So <laughs> I'm not really sure those are particularly meaningful names, uh, but Tertullian is how he's remembered. Um, Tertullian to me is fascinating, and again, like I, I like that word because um, his life story is a hodgepodge that I don't quite know what to make of, and in some ways, like even even like the collective church doesn't quite know what to do with Tertullian. He, he was never uh, officially recognized as a saint by those circles of the church that recognize saints, um, in part because in his later life, he joined up with a group that now I think we would have called a cult, uh, and then they called either schismatics or... Um, uh, heretics. He, he, ends, he ends up joining a group called the Montanists who believed that a new age of the Holy Spirit had arisen. They were, they, well, we can talk about them in a minute. So he is on the one hand remembered as uh, a voice that wrote really, really important fundamental theological ideas that became core like orthodox Christian teaching like the word trinity goes back to Tertullian um, and he was a huge huge proponent of the ideas that go into uh, the Nicene Creed when those so like these are like core basic things Christians have been professing in his own words for a long 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 time and that he's also remembered as this guy who eventually joined up with a bunch of heretics <laughs> he's remembered in some ways I think he has this delightful story streak in his theology and his writing and thinking of like the scandal of a God who comes so close as to die on a cross for us, but also later on uh, decides that um, people who had committed certain kinds of sins were never allowed to be back in the church, even if they repented and changed their mind or shit. I mean, like, so he lays this weird hodgepodge of like both like the scandalous, wonderful, reckless love of God, and at the same time, like, oh yeah, but if you're a fornicator or a murderer, you're out forever. Um, done, done. <laughs> right. And there's something I really, I, I have come to appreciate about that, about him, in that like, it would be really easy for me to just go, oh, well, he totally didn't understand how inconsistent he was. I'm glad I'm not like that. And, and said, no, I imagine that his example tells me there's probably a bunch of places in any of our theology where we mm -hmm. think we've got all the wrinkles ironed out. And nope, there's a bunch of places where we've got this messiness. Um, so I, I, I found him someone interesting to learn from both the things that the church continues to own as, yep, we're, we're solidly behind this, and the things that we just kind of smirk and go, oh, and we shrug over. Um, so a, a bit of backstory. Tertullian um, lived, he was born in the late 2nd century, so like that's, or we guess, like around the year 180, 195, that kind of thing. Um, this is still an era very much where Christianity is uh, being persecuted, sometimes in empire-wide programmatic violence against Christians, uh, and sometimes more sporadic. It kind of depended emperor to emperor and how much they hated us or not. Um, but um, So he's writing at a time what is very much dangerous to be a, a Christian. He came to faith 
later in life with a kind of dramatic, radical kind of a conversion moment. We, he doesn't tell a whole lot of stories, or at least in the writings of his that survive, we don't have details about that. But for him, it was this sort of decisive break with an old life and a new life. Uh, it was also still in a time when um, the church had not embraced being a part of the national or uh, empire's military either. The, the, the first several centuries of Christianity, almost universally, you'll find writings of uh, the early church fathers and mothers uh, who would say things like, we don't take up weapons to kill for the sake of the empire. We don't even defend ourselves. They feed us to lions. But And so Tertullian is remembered for the famous line, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Like our way of dealing with evil in the world is we will be willing to lay down our lives for it, but we won't go killing people to get our way. Um... So even though sometimes in Tertullian's writings he talks about being like a soldier of Christ, he doesn't in any sense mean Christians should go out taking weapons and like we should mm-hmm. take back our no. There's no taking back. We we die for the sake of others, but we don't we don't kill for others. Um, and uh, he's he's a he was born in Carthage, which is North Africa, and he was believed to be of Berber background. So that that sort of ethnic group that uh, a lot of Northern African uh, traditional cultures sort of uh, go back to. Um, for that matter, I think Saint Augustine is believed to be of Berber background as well. Um, and so, like, uh, he, he's a really really important early voice. He was the first major church figure to write extensively in Latin. Um, and so, like, the, as as the early church grew, like first. We were, you know, Jesus speaking Aramaic and a handful of people who spoke Aramaic. Then it, uh, by the New Testament, you've got people writing in Greek. And for several centuries, you've got Greek and Latin. And then when the fall of the, the Roman Empire, Latin sort of is, becomes the primary language. But, like, that's interesting to me at one level. Because, like, the, the, that means that the, because of folks like Tertullian, Christianity wasn't um, wedded to one language like... Um, like some ethnic groups would identify, mm-hmm. like part of what it is to be Jewish is no Hebrew or Yiddish, or part mm-hmm. of what it is to be Italian is, you know, you can speak a little bit of the old language, or, you know, but Christianity at some point had to wrestle with are we bound to a single language, or can you translate our scriptures into other languages, and do they still have the feel for it? I know, like, in classically in Islam, a translation of the Quran is not treated like the Quran. This is a translation, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have the same authority and that acknowledges, yeah, you change something anytime you translate, but Christianity also had to wrestle with, even if you translate, or is, is it still Christianity, or do we all have to go back to Aramaic, or do we all have to learn Greek? No, we could be Christians in whatever language, with whatever culture. Um, that was a big move that early Christianity had to make, and Tertullian was a part of that. Um, he was also one of those writers who, um, because Christians were getting rounded up and killed and thrown uh, into jails and fed to lions, wrote a number of works that were sort of defenses of the faith uh, that m- modern-day writers call apologetics or, or mm-hmm. apologies. Not like, I'm sorry for being a Christian, but here's here's why I believe what I believe. There were lots of other voices like that early on in the first several centuries. Sometimes the, the, the take that early Christian apologists would make would be trying to make the case for why Christianity is so rational. They'd be like, well, it makes perfect sense, and they'd try and lay out a case for why anybody would perfectly think it makes sense to be Christian. Sometimes Tertullian is like that, and sometimes he just steers into the weirdness. And that's one of the things I also really love about him. Tertullian is famous for, even though this isn't all of what he wrote, he's famous for this idea one of his quotes is, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Which is to say, if, if something that Christianity has to say doesn't make sense with the popular philosophy of the day, that's okay. I'll still be a Christian even if it's not popular or intellectually you know, explainable. I'm okay with that. He can live with this, this contradiction. And, and one of my favorite, favorite lines are Tertullian. It's a writing of his uh, in English is translated as uh, on the flesh of Christ. The Latin is um, de carne Christi, and I love that the word for flesh is carne, like it's the meat, of the meat of Christ. Um, he's making a case for why he believes that 
at the cross, you have none flesh in Jesus dying and rising. And he says something like, um, the Son of God died, it is certain because it is, uh, because it is absurd. Uh, he, he was buried and rose again, the fact is certain because it is impossible. He's, he's remembered, sometimes people shorten it to the Latin, credo qui absurdum, I believe because it is absurd. And I love that notion of like owning the weirdness of the Christian faith rather than like, well, it's perfectly reasonable. Why, like, I, 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 I see in that, in that strand of thinking of Tertullian's a wink back to like St. Paul when he talks about the foolishness mm-hmm. of the cross and the idea that the, the, the notion of a crucified God sounds crazy and like owning that and, and so Tertullian for me is one of those voices who uh, isn't afraid of that, but but owns that and says, "Yeah, that at the heart of our faith is a is a God who gets killed by gets executed by the empire, and that's God's greatest power." Yeah, that that's where we are. Um, later in his life, like I said, he he gets connected with this group called the Montanists, uh, who followed a guy named Montanus, which is why they were called the Montanists, um, <laughs> who believed something like that there was. In, in human history, the age of God, the, the father, the first person, and then when Jesus came, the era of God, the son, and now with the rise of Montanus, a new prophet, and the age of the Holy Spirit. And so it, I'm not exactly sure how much of what else they believed was different than what became Orthodox Christianity, but they also believed in this Montanus guy, uh, which is weird. And there are some early church fathers who lived a century or so later who are like, yep, at this point, Tertullian, uh, you know, jumped ship and joined up with his cult. And others would say, well, he never really abandoned the other things that were mm-hmm. made him his teaching orthodox. Um, and that, for that reason, like, we don't quite know what to do with him. He, he stands as a, a, a figure who taught and, and influenced other really, really important figures like Cyprian and then from Cyprian to Augustine. And these are people whose contributions mm-hmm. to the story of Christianity are like, yeah, that they're, they're, they all remembered as saints. Uh, Cyprian is remembered as Saint Cyprian, and Augustine is Saint Augustine of Hippo. And here's Tertullian, this guy whose uh, who's, whose legacy to the church is decidedly mixed in that regard. And that, that's part of why I find him so fascinating, so captivating. So that's Tertullian. So he stayed a Montanist like for the rest of his life, like well, just following like following the teachings he, of this guy. That, that's that's yeah. There, there's no point at which he. Uh, rejected Montanism, uh, at least that anybody's aware of. So, the, yeah, at the end of his life, he, he dies as Montanist. Um, and yet, um, it, 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 to, like, to say that this is, like, a Montanist and not a Christian, like, that, is impo- those, that Im- imports our categories when these are separate, discrete things. I'm sure in his mind, he was thinking, no, to be a Montanist is really to be a good Christian, and it's everybody, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not really sure whether they were, like, going to separate churches. Right. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. this is still an era when we're all meeting underground in, you know, people's houses and things. Um, they, I mean, they, they, they had begun to build Christian spaces or gatherings for worship in, um, um, uh, or using old, empty Roman basilicas. And, it, like, again, basilica, that was a Roman thing before Christians decided to build churches that way. Um, do, do you know what the teachings of Montanus was, other than this is now the age of the Holy right, Spirit? Right, right, right. Like, is there anything beyond that that's, like, kind of, like, Definitive. Oh, that seems weird. Because that doesn't sound so bad when you think of Pentecost. Right. And, I mean, you know, like, that's, in, right. you know, and how Jesus talks about the Spirit and the Spirit being our right. guide and our helper. It doesn't sound that terribly it's, off from Christianity. Right. It's just Pentecostal. Well, yes. it's, in, in some ways, and yet, but, like, and I guess I'd say it might, it might be, this is going to be kind of a rough or brush, brush, broad brushstroke, but, like, the way that classic mainstream Orthodox Christianity looks at, say, um, the Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses. It's sort of that, like, there's a lot that's very similar, but you've also left some... I, I think the, the relationship okay. is closer that way. Because so, so like, like, you're kind of Christian, but also... 
you're weird, maybe not Christian. Well, right, like, and, mm-hmm. and in a way that, like, um, and I, I want to be fair or and, and generous because I have a limited understanding of, of Mormon theology, but it is mm-hmm. my understanding in Latter-day Saints theology, like, it's, yep, Old Testament, New Testament, and also we have this additional revelation that came to Joseph Smith mm-hmm. on golden tablets, and <laughs> some of it totally syncs with everything else, and some of it takes it off in a new, interesting direction, and you also unpack the authority question of, like, yeah, if, if, if something that the Book of Mormon says that is different from what the Old and New Testament says, you got to go with the latest mm-hmm. edition, Book of Mormon it is, and then the ongoing prophets who speak. And, like, yeah. I think that's part of the can of okay. worms. If you've got a voice who says, yeah, Old Testament, New Testament, that's great, and also Montanus, and he also says... Do what Montanus says. Like, there's a point at which I'd go, mm, I really want to be with you, Tertullian, but, like, I can't go there. So I think that's sort of weird. Okay. Other distinctive features, uh, there's a rigid moral asceticism, you know, sort of living a very, very strict uh, moral life in a bunch of different ways. They were, mm-hmm. and, and Tertullian was, like, uh, in his own writings throughout his career, was also sort of like very, very strict about uh, sexual ethics. And it, in his categories of people who could not re- be readmitted to the church ever were fornicators and adulterers and murderers. Mm-hmm. Again, like echoing language from Revelation. So it's not like he pulled that all out of whole cloth. But like that's a strong... F- and it's hard to tell whether that would have been... That's just Tertullian. He's died in the wool in him. That would have been whether he didn't ever join up with the Montanists or not. But there's this rigid asceticism that's a part of his... Mm-hmm. That, that uh, way of life or that thinking. So again, it's hard to tell how much of that would have been Tertullian no matter what would have happened and how much of that is uh, got um, underscored or brought to the fore because he now got joined up with uh, the Montanists. I don't, I don't know that. Um, so it, it, it's, it's weird in that regard because I don't, it, it's never, it's, there was never a point where he said, I used to believe that Jesus was the savior of the world and now I don't, or mm-hmm. I used to love Jesus and now I reject Jesus, mm-hmm. but he saw this as sort of an outgrowth of that and as someone who now looks back and goes like, yeah, that was kind of culty. <laughs> um, doesn't know what to make of that. that. Again, that's part of what I what I appreciate about having to deal with his story. You know, that tension that he seems to have with um, the whole God is this, like, rat, has this radical love for everybody versus, but here are some sins that are unforgivable. Right. You know, I think, like, that sounds super harsh to my ears, but the more I think about it, the more it's like, yeah, that does kind of make sense because how often do we, as the right. church, mm-hmm. say um, the same thing? Exactly. Yeah. Of God loves everybody. If you repent, God forgives you. But at the same time, me personally, I struggle with like if you've done this, this, or this. Right. I don't want you anywhere near my right. church or me or my children right. or right. anything. Right. Like because oh. Thank God that God can forgive you because I can't. Right, mm-hmm. and like Tertullian's willing to go even further. Like even God can't forgive that. Like, like, and and that's that's tough because to, like, to my ears that sounds inconsistent. And yet, one of the things I find convicting about Tertullian's life story is that every time I read and wince when I read something that he writes, I go, "Oh, Tertullian, you like you lost me there." Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a piece of me that goes like. Okay, but where are the places in my world mm-hmm. where I've got blind spots and I'm doing the same thing? Where to borrow Jesus' language, there I'm I'm picking it at specks in other people's eyes, and I've got logs sticking out of my yeah. own. Um, and that, I mean, one maybe we should all strive to avoid inconsistency in our, the- in our theology, but also you're anytime you're dealing with mystery, with 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 things that are you know beyond human comprehension, there are going to be places where we have to own. Yes, yeah, some credulity mm-hmm. or, or requires being able to hold things in tension. And holding in tension is a nice way of saying lives with contradiction, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm okay with a theology that has some unobtradiction or tension. 
And at the same time, I don't want to get sloppy with that. I had a teacher in seminary who used to say, it's okay if we're from time to time in your theology to say, I've got to plead mystery here. But you only get two, like two times in your whole personal theology. You don't get to every time something is confusing go, oh, it's part of the mystery. I can't explain it. That seems like that's cheating. <laughs> um, so that, that, that's part of the, the wrestling for me about how to make sense of somebody whose story is he contributed so much that is good and beautiful and at the same time uh, has other things to say that like just bother me or mm-hmm. it seemed like he's were you not paying attention to this other stuff you said, Sertullian? Um, and what do we do with the legacy of, of that? I wonder if his idea of, you know, because you said the people couldn't come back to the church even if they repented. Right. And see, that's what really bothers me right, about it. Right, you right, know? Right. But again, I'm like you, Sarah, but, you know, do I really want those people, you know, hanging around yeah. me in my church? But I'm, I'm wondering how much that kind of influenced, and it's more prominent in our Roman Catholic churches, at least, um, a, um, I'm blanking on words. Holy cow. Um, Not no religion. Holy cow, no. no. <laughs> I know. You're thinking of Hindu. I'm thinking Hindu. Um, doctrine. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, you know, the, the idea of mortal sins. Oh, and, and, sins. Sure, sure. You know, and if that played into... Because I don't know where that came into Catholic doctrine. Right, right, right. And I don't know how firmly you get a rigid, like, here is what the mortal sins and here is what the venial sins are. And my my guess is that ideas like that emerged from the writings of scholars, not like an official church council or anything. It was mm-hmm. more like like an, a Thomas Aquinas or someone would be like, here's what I think. And then at some point that becomes well known enough that at some point later in a church council, the church, whether it's the Council of Trent or Pope so-and-so might say, yeah, what we've been teaching for a hundred years with Thomas Aquinas, yeah, that's all good. Um, and that's a lot more how church teaching has emerged again both both catholic and protestant as well that's often how things have emerged we sometimes imagine that it's like always very crystal clear and clean and like well we just read the bible we find the one verse and there it is there's our doctrine and no it's always been messier and nobody wants to admit that that's how sausage gets made (laughs) but but in catholic tradition at least my understanding of it is that um now if you die with a mortal sin you know on your soul and that's unconfessed Mm -hmm. and you're going to limbo purgatory i'm not sure or straight to hell. I'm not. I don't know how that all right, works. Right, right, right. Uh, but it sounds, you know, for Tertullian, you're just going straight to hell. Like, and, no, if you've committed it, then you're going to hell. Right. I don't care if you repent from it or not. Right. And like one of the things that's interesting to me is like Tertullian's an early enough voice where obviously there's some concern about like eternal afterlife location, mm-hmm. but. It, I think for Tertullian, it's a lot less about if you die and you have committed this or that sin, you go to the wrong after death location. And there's much more like a, in our community, we can't be associated with ongoing okay, murder. Okay, and yeah. even if you, and mm-hmm. I, so I think he's much more concerned about the life of the community of okay. like, we can't be, mm-hmm. there, and, and in a way similar to, and I, I don't want to push on this too hard, but like, I think there are good rules and policies these days in church life about having background checks for child abuse. Mm-hmm. And that if there are folks who have had background history with child abuse, they are not to be in alone situations with children in Sunday school or Bible school or the church yeah. nursery. And I often hear churches say, well, the policy is anybody's welcome in worship. Um, however, there are going to be certain, certain ways we protect children and make sure so-and-so is not alone with children because this is part of your mm-hmm. background. So there's this sort of, uh, you're welcome, but there are some things that are off limits forever because, anything bad again, we want to be able to to say publicly we want it we will do everything in our power to protect children that mm-hmm. kind of thing and i think there is maybe that the what sins go on that list changes era to era or generation yeah. to generation and maybe that's a fascinating study to explore too mm-hmm. what are the things that each generation calls its unforgivable sins um 
and why and for what good reason. Um, and before we judge an era and saying, oh, they're just too focused on rules and maybe there were reasons for it. But um, that, that that's a part of what's going on in the early, early church where it was less about Christianity is, is only a means to the afterlife. And it was more, we're trying to live out a way of life mm-hmm. and we are also trying to convince the Romans and the, the culture at large that we aren't terrible, monstrous things. One of the things Tertullian has to write and defend the faith about, we got accused in the early centuries of uh, practicing incest and eating children mm-hmm. because the early Christians, uh, the, the outside world heard things like, um, we celebrated this meal where we talked about eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ, and the early church had to say, no, we're not, we don't kill people and eat them, no, and then they'd have to unpack what Christian ritual was and what the, mm-hmm. the Eucharist is, um, and... We also had to deal with a culture that heard Christians call one another brothers and sisters, even people who were spouses, and we got accused. And, like, so there had to be people who rose up and said, like, I know this is confusing. You think that we're practicing incest and cannibalism. We are not. And we are not the Lannisters. <laughs> right, right. There's, there's a whole bunch of things that we aren't. Um, and part of the work of any of the apologists, Justin Martyr or Irenaeus or Tertullian, was to set the record straight mm-hmm. on those things. Um, and so I can understand also saying, like, if the concern is we are killing people and eating them, you probably also want to make it clear, no, not only are we not eating people, we aren't murdering people either, and we have a hard-line policy against mm-hmm. murder. Um, and for that matter, we have a policy against incest, and, you know, there's a long list of things we are against, too. Um, so I, I, that, that could be a piece of what's going on. But, yeah, there's also this mm-hmm. cost of the theological inconsistency of saying that God went to such amazing extreme lengths for the salvation of the world that God in Christ the Son dies and is buried and rises, even though that blows our minds. Oh yeah, but there's these handful of sins that are unforgivable. That sounds inconsistent to us, but I think so much more they are concerned about the life of the community and the life Mm of um, how do we live in a culture that is suspicious of us and sees us as dangerous and troublemaking. And in some places, own. Yeah, there's some things about Christianity that is always going to be dangerous to the empire, whatever the empire is, but also to avoid the wrong scandal. Like, if you want to be upset at Christians, be upset at our radical practice of hospitality and love for neighbor or forgiveness, not accusing us of incest and cannibalism. Those are the wrong things to hate us for, I guess. It just, as you're describing this early community that the Tertullian was part of, it keeps bringing me back to uh, the early church before the Council of Jerusalem. Council of Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and just all the laws and everything, and just trying to make sure that we're doing things the right way and keeping things good and proper mm-hmm. um which as somebody who likes things good and proper and orderly mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I fully agree with you're a good methodist <laughs> i'm a good methodist because i like my method of everything and so it's just um it, it's interesting to hear about because i don't know Tertullian that well mm-hmm. until what you shared with us today so um now i'm gonna have to go re- do, read some of his stuff well and like it what's funny to me is like the the it's it's really that one strand that I find so compelling his idea the Son of God died it's mm-hmm. you you can count it's credible because it sounds absurd this, he's he died, he was buried and and rose from the dead the fact is certain because it's impossible I love that idea of owning mm-hmm. the weirdness um, and to me it feels like that's a word that's worth regaining for this moment of life in the church where mm-hmm. like there were, there was a time when everybody assumed to be a good Christian was to be a good citizen and you didn't have to make a case for why you should go to church it was just that's what good respectable religious people do and you want to be a good mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that we need to own for this moment in 21st century American Christianity mm-hmm. is like to own the weirdness rather than to downplay mm-hmm. it and so I'm much less interested just personally this is I not the Lord here I'm much less interested in the, the voices out there they're trying to make a case for why Christianity is so reasonable and uh, instead why 
I'm, I'm okay with it's there's something scandalous about this this mm-hmm. faith that we claim and rather than down pedaling or soft pedaling the weirdness to own it um and not not like in a bragging sort of way but like it's okay if people give us weird looks that's 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 how you know you're doing it right <laughs> yeah i agree fully with you on that steve because i think we we tried too much to explain and rationalize christianity which is a religion that cannot be explained and rationalized completely mm-hmm. you know parts of it can mm-hmm but the whole thing overall cannot, mm-hmm. and we've lost that. Yeah, I, I feel like, and again, it, it seems weird for someone who, in other writings, tries to make a rational, plausible case for Christianity, ends up also saying it's okay if it's impossible. That's how I know it's true. But mm-hmm. I think there's a, there is an inner logic to like if it were something that sounded plausible and reasonable, that would be evidence that we had made it up. But if there's something that goes like I cling to this story, I cling to this good news, even though it defies my ability to control it or rationalize mm-hmm. it or make sense of it, that's part of to me what makes it compelling. And that also means to me that the places in our faith that do have that non-negotiable mystery or the pieces where there's a tension I can't get away from. To me, like, if, if my philosophy or my way of life or my religion answered all the questions I had with easy, simple, pat answers, I'd say, that sounds like the Matrix. That sounds like something. That's just too convenient. But the something where the, there's this nagging, it doesn't quite resolve, That that's part of what tells me there's something genuine and honest going on there. I mean, why for 2,000 years would people defend this faith that mm-hmm. can't be rationalized completely? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to me, like, I, th- I think, again, personally, me, like the... The idea that the the right way to defend the faith, I think, is much less to um, try and persuade someone uh, of the the how perfectly plausible and respectable it is, but to own the strangeness and say that's how the story goes. There, there's an old line, it might have been a Karl Barth line, that the best the best apologetics is a good dogmatics, which is to say instead of trying to con- persuade everybody that you're right, tell your story and let your story stand on its own mm-hmm. and let its own compelling power, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while I'm grateful for voices like, you know, in the 20th century, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, who tries to make a rational case for why Christianity is so plausible, there's also a piece for me that, that is like, that's a, that, that's fine, um, but I'm okay with owning the scandal and saying, let's mm-hmm. not downplay it and, and say, oh, it turns out to be perfectly reasonable in the end, but that it's it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a radical notion of a god who who gets killed by the empire and yet that's god's most powerful victory well and while reason might bring some people to the gospel you know eventually they're going to come up against something in their life that's not reasonable sure and they need a gospel that can handle that non-reason right 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 that they're so used to to clinging to for everything that they've got they've got to be able to cling and say sure. you know what this isn't reasonable sure. but neither is this gospel that i believe in sure. and so this is truly yeah. what what God has created and what God has intended for the world. Now, that said, I also am aware of how easy it is for that kind of like celebrating the tension or celebrating the mystery uh, and celebrating the scandal of Christianity to get misused too in ways mm-hmm. of like, mm-hmm. because I believe in Jesus, I don't listen to science. And I think, no, like things like, I think it's good to vaccinate our kids. I, I'm, yeah. I'm like, one. That's a, I think science has done mm-hmm. a lot of really good things and I'm, that's, I, I'm, all too well aware of how many times trying to appeal to that Tertullian kind of logic of what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? We scoff at all the knowledge of the world because we operate with the foolishness of the gospel as though that means like um, we have to ignore things that are learnable from the created world. So I, I'm, I'm nervous about the ways that gets abused. And that, again, for me, part of that tension is I appreciate the contribution that a Tertullian makes, but I'm glad he's not the only voice from the early church because 
I could that could become a rabbit mm-hmm. hole, and um, we and we can we may have had conversations before in earlier episodes in the distant past about um, like the creation story in Genesis one and two, and like how. My, at least my, I'm convinced the reading is that they're 24 hours, six mm-hmm. literal days, and I think the mm-hmm. text itself doesn't bear that out. But I also know folks who, out of or science, the Bible says it was six 24-hour literal days, and therefore I will disregard everything else that mm-hmm. scientists have learned. It, again, to me, like I think the Bible itself doesn't argue for a 24-hour literal days there, mm-hmm. and that's a separate conversation. But I also know folks who sort of like like take as our mark of Christian um, authenticity. Mm-hmm. If you decide, if you think that there were that there weren't dinosaurs on the ark, then you don't really believe because we just sort of like celebrate and revel in the, the anti intellectualism mm-hmm. or anti reason, and that that's a concern for me. Um, and I, I knowing that that can get misused, don't want to don't want to continue to play into that. I guess so. Ongoing tension. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you to both of you for being willing to listen to one of my. Favorite fascinating characters, even though um, I, I wouldn't be like in favor of naming my church Saint Tertullian's. <laughs> um, I find him in, in, one of those characters I can't I can't ignore. So thanks for letting me share about him. You're thank welcome. You. Also, thank you. And you, I am amazed that I'm fascinated, if you will, that you're able to tell us all that stuff about him without notes. Thanks. For those of you who can't physically see Steve right now, he did not have any notes for any of that. Oh my gosh. I have like three pages of notes for my people. Well, anyway, thanks for listening. And if you're if you're interested, uh, Tertullian's got to look for. His first name is Quintus, but don't look under Quintus. <laughs> Talk to you later, everybody. Bye. Bye.